Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Immigrant Nation, we are back for another episode. Like my son said on top, I'm Erin Deliosa, and this is an Immigrant's Life. For the OGs, thank you as always for your support. I appreciate you for sticking around and for your continued support. And if you're new here, welcome, and I'm glad that you're here. I hope you like what you hear. And if you want to follow us on all the social media, our handle is at an immigrant's life. I post artworks there that are related to the episode, audio snippets, uh, and whatever else that tickles my fancy. So please follow us and like and share and all that good stuff. Anyways. Let's talk about this week's episode. I love this episode as it reminded me to be grateful for what I have and be proud of what I have accomplished. And I hope you get that feeling too by listening to this episode. Let's not waste time. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa dalawa tatlo. Today's guest is an entrepreneur and an avid cyclist. The person that takes most of my money next to my wife. Because he's my bike mechanic. Everyone, please welcome Ellie Cohen. Hey, it's a pleasure to, to be taking your money, like you said. <laughs> I know, I, I knew you're gonna like that. <laughs> That's good. Hey, you know what, man? It's um, it's not my fault. Your your bike is is giving you issues sometimes. Hey, man, don't worry about it. I was just busting your balls. <laughs> I swear, I, I'm not putting thumbtacks in your wheels. <laughs> Imagine. Anyways, first of all, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And before we move on, if you have anything to promote, go ahead, my man. It's your time. Um, okay. Yeah, check out my uh, my little business. It's uh, twowheelsmtl.com. If you want to book uh, a tune-up or any kind of repair for your bike, um, that's basically my my gig, my, my specialty, my hobby, my passion. Mm. I'm an avid cyclist. I do mountain bikes, road bikes. If you, if you have a bike and it needs to be fixed, yeah, mm. check me out. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, like I said, my website, twowheelsmtl.com. That's two, like, like number two. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, but you know, I have listeners around the world. Yeah. You're not going to India anytime soon, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's around, just around the area, Montreal. That's right, that's right. Montreal, Gatineau now. Um, I'll make some exceptions maybe to go to Toronto if you really need. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not international yet. Someday, someday. Maybe, hopefully. Right. Yeah, so we'll start from the start. Where was Eli originally from? Um, so I was born uh, in Israel. Um, in the north of Israel, uh, on a kibbutz, which uh, which I see you have the, the background of, um, and actually it's it was the first kibbutz. It was uh, established in 1908, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I should probably know this, but I think it's 1908 or 1910. So it was mm-hmm. the first ever kibbutz, and uh, it's situated right on the southern end of the uh, Sea of Galilee or Lake Kinneret, as they call it in, uh, in Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, it's a small agricultural community. Um, I think there were probably around 500 people living there when I was born. Mm-hmm. Now there might be a little more, maybe seven or 800. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was basically like, uh, you know, an agricultural uh, farm type community community. Uh, beautiful place in a valley surrounded by big mountains like an absolute paradise so so that's where i was born beautiful place but just for the people that doesn't know what's a kibbutz so yeah that's a good question i should probably preface this um so a kibbutz is is an interesting ideological uh way of living um it's based off of socialism but i was i'm gonna say that it has some uh, democratic roots as well. And it's kind of a hybrid system. 
So basically the way that it works is you have a governing committee, which uh, are all elected officials uh, elected by the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and this government uh, body basically manages, you know, everything. And, um, and every individual person within the kibbutz has his assigned, his or hers assigned position uh, role. And, um, and whatever your role is, your income, your earnings uh, is distributed equally amongst everybody. Mm-hmm. So you could be uh, a farmer working in the banana fields, uh, or you could be a caretaker, um, like my mother was taking care of young children. Um, or you can be working at one of the factories that we have on the kibbutz. And whatever your job is, uh, it's, you know, your earnings uh, are the kibbutz's earnings and the earnings are distributed equally amongst everybody. Um, so there's, uh, I guess, a great sense of equality. Um, uh, like I said, it's very ideological. Uh, you know, it's focused on uh, group effort, which is actually where the name kibbutz comes from. It mm-hmm. comes from the, the, it sort of has roots in the Hebrew word kvutza or um, group, which translates to group. Um, so that's kind of like the origins of it. It was, uh, like I said, this was the first kibbutz established in 1908. Mm-hmm. And, um, at first it started with maybe 20 people, 30 people. And, uh, it was a very, very tough environment. Like, uh, it was just desert, um, with, uh, actually it wasn't only desert. It was a little bit of wetland as well, like very marshy land. Mm. And, um, this group of people, they, they came there. Uh, with these uh, ideologies, they wanted to erect this, you know, this society. And so they planted eucalyptus trees to soak up the water. They started to irrigate the land. They started to, you know, work it and basically created this agricultural community that grew and grew and grew. Mm. And then uh, by the end of the, of the century, um, in the 1990s, there were many, many kibbutzim all around Israel. Mm. Um, Who in your family moved to the area first? So this is a an interesting and long uh, story. Uh, basically, it started with. Uh, so uh, maybe I'll go back a little bit. So my Israeli side of the family is is my mother's side, mm. and my father's side actually they're also European in the roots, but my father actually was born in Canada. Mm. He came to, to Israel in the 1990s and met my mother. Is he Jewish but, though? Uh, he's Jewish, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but my mother's side of the family, uh, they were originally Europeans, uh, Polish, Lithuanian, Bulgarian, all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they all had, um, you know, around, uh, uh, I think it was in the 1930s, just before the war, um, World War II, of course, uh, when things started to get a little bit uncertain there, um, a lot of a lot of them, you know, uh, basically got on boats and fleed Europe. Mm-hmm. And so that was the case for my grandmother's family, who uh, fleed to Brazil, mm-hmm. um, which is where she was born, my my grandmother. And later, when Israel was established as a country, that which was in 1948, uh, she decided to uh, to do Aliyah, we call it. So basically, like. Uh, to immigrate back, to come back to the, to, to, to the Holy land, you know, to the, the, the chosen land. Mm-hmm. And, um, that, that was a movement that was very big in, in, in the, in those days, um, you know, Zionists all over the world, people who wanted to, who believed in Israel as a, as a nation, uh, decided to come back and to, to help build this nation. So mm-hmm. my grandmother came from Brazil. Um, my, my grandfather came from Bulgaria and they met on the kibbutz. They both uh, they both arrived on the kibbutz and they met there, and that's how that's how it started. That's so crazy, man! It's it's, it's yeah. so insane. Like your grandma's in Brazil and your grandfather's in Europe, and then suddenly they're like in one spot. You know what I mean? It's not like they have Facebook or Tinder or whatever else. You know, they just end their destiny or whatever you want to call it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is really, really crazy. And it actually gets even crazier because um, and I don't know the whole story like off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but there are records that I found like that our family had uh, some letters that were written. And 
apparently the reason why my family actually moved to Brazil in the first place mm. is because they were given an ultimatum by the, the, the Polish government um, because they were actually caught uh, producing moonshine, I believe it was. <laughs> so so it, it, it's, it's funny because like they're, yeah, the, I guess... Um, I guess they, you know, they were involved in some kind of legal manufacturing of moonshine, which during those times also, I don't know if there was a prohibition in Europe, but there was definitely one in in the States. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and I don't know if that affected anything or not, but anyways, for whatever reason, they were not allowed to do that. And so they were kicked out and, uh, and that's how they found themselves on the way to Brazil. Um, uh, so yeah, crazy story. It's just like all just chance occurrences, you know, mm. random, random events that just led to this. Exactly. So you mentioned that your town was like a sleepy town. What was there for a child to do? Oh, man, um, I, I actually think that it was probably the best environment for a child. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so first of all, like, it's hard to imagine a kibbutz. So I'm just going to sort of like try to you know, draw a picture for you, but basically it's like, a, it's a, clo- it's a gated community and all the buildings, all the different houses are attached with like sidewalks. There's no, no streets. There's like one big street that cars can actually fit on that will go around the circumference. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, it's all just sidewalks. So in terms of safety, it's like the ultimate place for safety, you know, in terms of like uh, just being able to run outside the door and just play and have fun like it was, it was absolute, it was absolute heaven, you know, growing up. Mm-hmm. And what's cool is that, you know, you, you have, you're not just the only kid, like you're growing up with a bunch of kids that are your own age. You know, you're, you're, you're basically like, um, my grade, like my year, uh, I was born in 1992. Uh, I think we were like 20 or so kids, maybe a mm-hmm. little bit less, but wow. it was like 20. Yeah. It was like 20 kids that were like best friends and we were always with each other and, you know, from the moment we were born, we were kind of raised together. Um, we, uh, there's like um, these, uh, so in Hebrew, it's called Bet uh, Yeladim, which translates to like house of the kids. And it's like, it, it's like a place that you go to after, after school. So okay, okay. you go to school together, you spend the day together, then you go to this house and then you basically do activities together. You chill, you do homework, whatever it is. And then mm. only later in the evening when your parents are finished, you know, work and stuff, you do go home. So you're wow. basically always with other people. And it's like very unifying, very community oriented, um, just a completely different way of life. So mm-hmm. in terms of things to do, like there's so much, I mean, like, yeah, it's yeah. Uh, mainly focusing on like uh, nature, you know, like a lot of, a lot of being outside. Mm-hmm. A lot of like, uh, you know, going in the fields, uh, picking fruits, uh, understanding like agriculture. We have animals, uh, cows, chickens, uh, horses. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's like, you know, it's not like the Netflix type of stuff. You know, it's not like technology and iPads and all that, but mm-hmm. it's more like, and this was all obviously also in the 90s. So it's a different context entirely. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, it was uh, very, very wholesome good fun you know mm-hmm. did you guys had electricity uh yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah like mm. uh we we it's uh yeah you have you have electricity we even had internet like starting in 1999 maybe mm-hmm. we were one mm-hmm. of the i actually remember like when they were first putting in the network like they were hooking it up it was like a like a tester mm. and they wanted to try they, they had like a few homes that they wanted to sort of like test out. Mm. And so uh, we were selected as one of the homes. And I remember at the time I was, uh, I had, I had like my, my room in the house was like this very, very small little room. It was like, it, it was small. I, I want to say it was almost like the size of this little closet. Like my, my bed just barely fit in there. And mm. then all of a sudden we, we, we put a computer there as well. Cause it was like where they had put the, the ethernet connection. Mm. And so like, my room shrunk even more because we had like this big white box in there, you know, like, mm-hmm. you know, the old computers, the CRT monitors and all that. Mm-hmm. So we had that put in and, uh, and yeah, like we had, we had internet like very early on, but I think it was 99. 
And uh, I remember like being a very, very cool thing. Like very but new. You said that everyone's equal, right? But how come only few houses has internet? How come not everyone has internet? No, no, no. obviously. <laughs> so like after, after a few years, like everybody started to get internet, but like in the first few months, it was like, they wanted to just test it out. So they didn't want to overload this. Like, I, I don't know the whole like reason, but I think they wanted to test it out with a few homes first to see like mm. how the network could be supported. And then mm. once it, uh, like once they saw that it was feasible, they, they expanded it to all the other homes. Today, if you go there, everybody has internet, everybody has Netflix and flat screen mm. TVs. And it's, it's like, you know, very developed, but this was obviously late nineties. So for sure, for sure. So you mentioned that you're always with this 20 kids and I'm sure there are moments that like, I don't want to chill with these people all the time. And I'm <laughs> sure there's like an asshole kid there that you don't want. Yes. Yes. There were, there were two guys I remember. There were these two kids that like nobody really liked. They were just bullies, man. Mm. And I remember, so I had a dog at that time. Her name is Phoebe. She was like this German shepherd mix. And she was such an amazing dog. Like she was super, super, um, uh, what's the word? Like uh, protective. Mm. and uh and i remember one time like this this guy he came up to i don't remember what it was we were fighting over i think he may have like stolen some of my pokemon cards or something <laughs> <laughs> but he came up to my house and he was like he was just annoying me and he was like he was he was just being a real bully and he was even like bugging my my dog and this dog the most gentle dog in the world that would never hurt a soul she she could smell something rotten about this kid and she like jumped up at him and like, she didn't bite him, but she, she stood up for him. Mm -hmm. Literally. She actually like stood on her hind legs and like got on him and was like, Hey, get away from here right now. Like you're not welcome here. And it was, it was, it was actually a pretty cool moment because ever since then he just left me alone. He would never, especially when the dog was around, he would never, he wouldn't even come near me. So let's but, say, uh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, for the most part, like, everybody else was super chill. Um, I, I had two amazing friends who were, like, three musketeers always together, mm. always doing adventures. Like, oh, man, it, it was cool. It was it was a very, very nice time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wait, how do you join the kibbutz? Like, can I just join or you have to be Jewish? Um, That's a good question. I don't know if you have to be Jewish. I, I think you do. Mm. I, I'm not sure. It's, it, it's, it's weird. Okay. Like Judaism means a different thing to Israelis as it does to maybe Jewish Canadians mm. um, or to, or to Christians, I should say, or to any other religion, like to most religions, you know, the religion that they follow, it, it's a religion. That's, that's, that's what it is. But it, for Jewish people, you could be Jewish and not religious. If that makes sense. Mm. It's more like, it's like an identity. And it's like, um, it's like a, it's like a cultural identity. So even though you might have to be Jewish to be in the kibbutz, like you don't, you can be secular. You can actually be even atheist. I would say like, you don't have to be praying at all or believe in any God or anything, but if you're Jewish, like it's kind of like, a an identity You're you're part of the tribe. You're part of the, um, uh, yeah, mm -hmm. part of the tribe. So your grandparents was in Europe, you mentioned. Did they escape the German invasion? They did. I was very lucky. Like, I mean, not me directly, but I'm, I'm lucky in the sense that, like, most of my family did not suffer the consequences of the, hmm. of the Nazi invasion. But, I, I mean, obviously, like, that's not the case for, for most Jews, you know. Mm -hmm. Most Jews, their history is directly linked to that, to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, the, the terrible things that, uh, that happened in World War II. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, in some ways, like, because my identity is Jewish, like, it's a pain that I carry my, with, with me as well. But, um, like, if, if I trace back my lineage directly, I don't think many people in my f immediate family were, were affected very much. Mm -hmm. I'm actually reading about um, a Holocaust book. It's called Night by... Eli Ellie Weasel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a great book. 
I've read a few books. I've read Shinder's List, you know. Uh, but Night is like, every time I read them, like, yo, this is fascinating. But every page is like a heartbreak. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it really is. But it's important. Like, it's something that I think everybody needs to educate themselves about. Um, because it's uh it's a dark part of humanity that um, always is going to lurk there and may always lurk there and if we don't educate ourselves about it we you know we may we may repeat it you know it might i mean genocide has happened since and that's something that you know the, the holocaust got a lot of recognition around the world but there's many genocides that have gone on that did not and I think that it's, you know, if it's something that can reoccur more than once, it, it says something about um, the human condition. So, and it's not to say that everybody's bad or, or it's not to say that, you know, that, that humans are nat- naturally gravitate towards bad, but I think it's like our duty to educate ourselves in order to, to be aware of, of what action, like where actions can take you and where they can lead. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's such a sad situation. And especially now with the pandemic and, you know, the government having like passports and, you know, mandates and whatnot, and people are equating that to the yellow star. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just like, is it really a yellow star or is it just like, you know what I mean? What do you think of that? (laughs) You're going to put me on the spot here. Um, I think... I think the intentions were good. I, I I don't think that like, especially in Western in the Western world, I, you know, some people like I, I've heard it all. I've heard the conspiracy theories, and I've heard people like thinking like that. You know, this is just a way for them to to you know take take more and more from us, and and it's like kind of like a a, a staircase that leads to like an authoritarian authoritarian uh, you know like dictatorship. But mm-hmm. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think like you know we live in a Western society. We live in, in a democratic society. We live in a place that's pretty liberal or well, actually kind of very liberal. And so like, I think that, you know, the, the intentions were pure, the intentions were good. And I think that it started off um, as it should have, but I think that like, you know, with, with governments, the, the problem is that they don't, um, they don't respond quickly to the changing environment sometimes mm. because of all the red tape and because of all the policy and because, you know, governments are designed by nature to be protective of people. So mm. uh, it's, a, it's, it's a machine that rolls very slowly. Um, so I think by the time that we started to realize that maybe um, vaccine mandates and vaccine passports were not necessarily the most uh, effective thing anymore. The government was still implementing these and mm. people who were being exposed to the media, which obviously changes at a much quicker pace, uh, started to get the wrong idea about it. And I think it was this, like, I, I think it actually took a pretty natural course at the end of the day. You know, the people showed the government that this is not what they want anymore. It wasn't necessary. And yes, there were some protests, Mind you, it didn't get violent or, any, or, or at least too violent. And I think that it overall, it stayed pretty reasonable. And the government responded uh, in accordance to, to what the people wanted. So I, I, I think overall, the situation went pretty well. Yeah, I mean, yes. it wasn't, I agree with you. It, was, it wasn't as bad. Like, and touching back about your opinion about the government, it's just, I feel like the government is like a parent that like said something and then he realized Oh shit! I said something wrong, but he cannot retract that because, or else he will look weak in front of the child. So he's just like, "Yeah, let's just continue doing this." Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good analogy. Actually, it's true. Like, you know, how many parents say something and then it's like they don't want to go back on the word because, like, their egos in the way, and like they, you mm. know, they, they're they're like the authority, right? They want to keep that authoritative power. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's not because they mean bad but it's because they just have a, a certain image to uphold. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's what the, the government, you know. Yeah, they didn't, did. they didn't, no one knew what to do. You know what I mean? And like you True. said, it's a machine that it moves so ever so, so slowly that, you know, it takes time for them to decide. And then when they decide, ego comes in and they just cannot retract. Yeah, exactly. Let's go back to you. Actually, no. 
there's one question I want to talk about. The Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Do you mind talking about that? Oh, man. Um, yeah, like I said earlier, I, I don't shy away from anything. And uh, yeah, we can talk about it for sure. Yeah, go for it. Ask me. So what's your opinion about it? Um, my opinion about it, like any conflict between two people, is it's, it's absolutely horrible. It's appalling. And um, I think that uh, I think that there's been so many unnecessary deaths, so much unnecessary pain, so much unnecessary anxiety. Um, that's that's the reality of it. Is the fact that you know there's never ever good that comes out of conflict. It's only uncertainty. It's pain. It's generational trauma. Mm. Um, so. Uh, my opinion towards the conflict itself. Yeah. Not good. Um, you know, if you ask me like politically, uh, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing because you can understand both sides. You know, if you think about it, like Israel, you know, it has its rights to be a nation as, as any, as anybody does, as any, as any group of people does. Um, so, they have to protect themselves. They have to make sure that their people are protected. They have to ensure that, you know, their people has a, have a place that they can thrive in and, and, and succeed in. Mm. Um, and the government of Israel for the most part has, has the, you know, good intentions, uh, when it comes to that. Um, and then of course the same goes for the Palestinian people, but, I think when it comes to Palestinian governing bodies, uh, it, it's maybe not not the same story. Mm. Um, uh, I feel like I feel like there's some things that uh, you know that their governing body, well, like Hamas, for example, um, you know, which is recognized as a terror group, uh, are doing things that are not necessarily in the favor of their people. Mm. You know, it's, they're maybe trying to take down the Israelis and succeed in their own way, but they're also hurting their people at the same time. So I don't see the same, like, uh, um, uh, good faith on that side, uh, as I do, uh, necessarily with the Israeli government. Um, but that's, that's politically speaking. And again, if I go back to like, you know, the people and how they should live. Of course, every single civilian in this world has the right to live comfortably, safely, and with all the necessities that they need, food, water, shelter. Mm -hmm. For sure. Of course, we're not politicians. How would you think they should fix it? Like, they should cut the land in half, separate everyone. How do you think it should be done? Um... Good question. I think that there definitely needs to be a separation of, of, of land. I think that the populations differ quite, quite a lot, um, culturally, uh, and, you know, religiously and in, and in other ways. So to, you know, to maybe to combine the, the, the two people in, in one place could be a little bit difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think that each of them is entitled to, their own place where they can be who they are and practice their own faith mm -hmm. and, and feel comfortable in their own culture. Um, but, by the, but at the same time, like, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but there's, there's hundreds of thousands of Arabs that live within uh, Israel and coexist uh, beautifully. And uh, there are many, many villages where, um, yeah, you have, uh, you know, Muslim Arabs and Jewish people, working in the same place, going to the same schools mm. and, and sort of existing together. Uh, but when it comes to the Palestinians, it's, it's, it's a different story. And um, uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe like a certain barrier separation would be necessary. Um, but there has to be some kind of way that, you know, both people uh, get the resources that they need mm. and have respective governments that, care for their people and work together and, you know, um, uh, help each other thrive in a way, like sort of like a, 
uh, an economy that, that works alongside each other. But, you know, whether that's possible or not, uh, it's, it's, I think it's, it's a lot of work to, to put, you know, their fundamental ideologies aside to, to, to make that work. It's, mm-hmm. Exactly. Like you said earlier, ego. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it goes back to ego. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your immigration to Canada. Sure. Who moved first? Who decided to move to Canada? Why Canada? Um, so my father, as I said earlier, was from Montreal, from, from Cote St. Luke, actually. And uh, he, he moved to, uh, to Israel. He met my mom in the kibbutz. They had me. They had my sister. And then about uh, 10 years, so this is like 2001, give or take, mm-hmm. um, he started to, uh, he, he, was, he was in contact with one of his friends back here. And, uh, and his friend basically told him that he has like a, a job opening. And because uh, his friend was, uh, had inherited this company from his parents. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he said to, to my dad, hey, listen, like, um, you know, there's a good opportunity here for you. You have experience working in a, in a factory because my dad worked at a factory in Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you'd be good as like an operation, as like a, you know, like a VP of operations, you know, somebody who can take a more leadership role. Already VP? Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. VP of operations. Yeah. So it was a big opportunity. And I think like, I think my father, um, I think he believed that our opportunities in Israel would be limited. Mm because of the way that the kibbutz was operating, you know, and because it was socialist, mm-hmm. right? Like you're never really going to be uh, standing above the, the crowd. You know, you're never going to be making it as like a big tech entrepreneur there. You're never, I mean, you could within Israel, but within the kibbutz, it's, it's a little limited. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think he saw this opportunity to bring us to the big city and to sort of have us experience like city life and opportunities and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that, that that's, that thought was appealing to him. And so in 2002, um, I think it was summer, uh, he decided to, to bring us all here. Also oh, one shot, you guys all moved. Yep. One shot, one shot. My, my father, my mother, and my sister and I. Mm-hmm. How old were you then? So I was, I was 10 years old. 10 years old. Yeah. How did you feel? Did you even travel around Israel then? Or this is like the first time you're traveling? Dude, so I'll tell you a funny story. <laughs> when my parents first broke it to us that they were going to move, that we were going to move to Canada, mm-hmm. I started bawling my eyes out. This was like a few months before. And I just remember... I remember him, like, I remember my parents sitting us down, my sister and I, and they were like, guys, your mom and I have been talking about it. And we think it's, it's going to be a good idea if we move to Canada. And like, immediately I just started bawling. And <laughs> see, this is the reason why is because I had all my friends mm-hmm. there. Like I was a happy kid. I, I had everything there. I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. You got Phoebe watching so, you. I got Exactly. So I was, I was, I was obviously like really devastated. And I remember after we had this family talk, I went over to my sister and I was like, I was, I was like wiping away tears still. And I was like, no, um, on the day that we're going to fly, I'm going to run away. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to run away. I'm going to go to my friend's house. Never mind, My friend's house was like three streets, uh, three doors down. I was like, I'm going to run away to my friend's house. I'm going to, I'm going to go into his basement. I'm just going to hide there. And, and mom and dad are just going to have to fly on their own. <laughs> this is this is the logic of a 10 year old mm-hmm. and my sister of course she was like yeah that's a great idea i'm, I'm gonna come with you i was like okay perfect so we had this plan to run away on the day that we were gonna fly and to hide in my friend's basement until my parents decided okay we're just gonna not look for them anymore and fly alone <laughs> but obviously uh that was not the reality. And actually when the day came, I was like pretty excited. I was like, I was, I was gung ho. I was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's, uh, let's see what, what Canada is like. So, uh, so yeah, we moved and we, we came with absolutely nothing. Uh, I don't even know how much money we had in our name, but it couldn't have been much. Like I would think, I think my, my 
father's parents. So my, my grandparents on my father's side were actually paying for our rent and for our schooling at first. Mm. Um, so we got ourselves a little apartment in a duplex in Cote St. Luke. And um, that was like the biggest cultural shock of my mm. life. <laughs> I started, you know, like uh, school, man, school was so different. In Israel, school was like a, an open campus mm -hmm. where like you had a bunch of buildings sort of like not really connected to one another and you had fields in between and you would just go from one building to the next for each class. And then all of a sudden I came here and school, school was like a prison, you know, it was like one building and you go out the rear door for your recess. And then you're like encapsulated by a fence, you know, and you're, you're like, you know, you're staring through this fence at the street on the other side, watching like the world pass you by. And it was just so depressing, mm. but uh, slowly, slowly I got used to it and you know, North American life started to seep in mm. and take over. And, and I think after probably after like two or three years, I was pretty well adjusted. Mm -hmm. Did you go to a Jewish school or just a normal school? Yeah. My first two years, I went to a Jewish private school mm -hmm. um, called uh, JPPS. And the reason why I think was my parents wanted like, wanted us to have like an easier integration time. Mm -hmm. But honestly, I don't think that was a great idea because man, if they had only sent me to a French school, I would have been, I would have been talking French now and I would have been having a much easier time here in Quebec. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, it, it was good though. It was good. Like, you know, I, at least it, the culture shock wasn't too extreme. Mm -hmm. How was your English then? Um. It wasn't bad because my father taught me English since I was pretty young, okay. but, but here's another funny story I'll tell you. <laughs> so the, the, I, I told you that we moved here in the summer, right? It was like July. So we, my grandparents decided that they were, that if we were going to come here in the summer, that they would, they were going to put us into like, you know, some kind of sport. And, uh, and for me, it was, it was soccer. So I remember being put into this, uh, I think it was the Hampstead Soccer League or something like mm. that. And I started meeting some some kids there and I started making like my first friends. And everything was was going well, but like I, I was bothered a little bit inside because you know, here I was like listening to them talking their slang and and just having fun and, and speaking like kids do. And I was like using this very proper English and I was like <laughs> speaking with an accent and it just like I, I just didn't feel like I was fitting in as well as I, as I, as I wanted mm -hmm. to. So I, I remember like going back home every day, looking at myself in the mirror and like reciting to myself the slang that they were using and just practicing in the mirror to like get rid of my accent mm -hmm. and like totally assimilate myself. And, and that's what I did. Like I, I just genuinely, I tried very, very hard to fit in. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't want to be like this uh, sore thumb that's sticking out, you know? Mm. So within, within like one year, I was basically like fully fluent speaking the slang, uh, got rid of my accent and I just wanted as little attention on me as possible. So like the kibbutz life. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I wasn't used to the intention. I, I don't, I, to be honest, I don't like the attention. Like, you know, I, I was never like much of a, a crowd type person mm -hmm. or, so my goal was to just fly under the radar, you know, and don't bring too much attention to myself. Uh, you know, uh, maybe the bullies won't, won't pick on me that way. Mm. Tell me about the day you saw a bag at a phone booth. I love the story. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Um, so I'll, uh, maybe I'll, just for your listeners, I'll give like a little like uh, backstory. Mm. So, in Israel, like it's obviously, especially in the 1990s, after the, the fall of the Oslo Accords, you know, there's a lot of bombings and stuff going on. And uh, growing up in the 90s, um, you know, you were taught to be suspicious of like, of any foreign object. Like we actually had a word for it. It was called chifetz chashud, which means like suspicious item. And uh, if you went anywhere in public and you saw like, 
you know, a bag or something that was unaccompanied, you, you call the bomb squad right away. And like, they came in there, they had like this robot, it would either detonate it or like open it up or whatever. So here I was 10 years old and I came to Canada and, uh, I, you know, one day I'm at the Cote St. Luke mall, just doing some grocery shopping with my mother mm-hmm. and I'm passing by this phone booth and I see uh, a woman's purse just like lying in the phone booth, you know? So all the bells started going off in my head and I was like, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, no, this is not right, man. This is going to go off any moment. Mm. So I, I, I remember like telling my mom, like, mom, there's a purse there. Like we, we got to tell somebody this is dangerous stuff. (laughs) This is somebody needs to do something. And, um, and she's like, okay, yeah, you're right. I, I I don't know what, I don't know why she, she, she fed into my anxieties. Like she was, you know, oh, she, cause she's going through shit too. Yeah, I guess so. I guess. Um, and so luckily like there was, you know, there was like a, what do you call it? A fire truck nearby. And uh, yeah, I went up to the firefighters and I'm like, I'm like, listen, there's a, a person there. Uh, it could be a bomb. I, I, you guys need to go check it out. And they're looking at me with the most confused faces ever. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so but you know nonetheless they uh they, they took my warnings and they went in there mind you they weren't wearing any other protective equipment <laughs> and they just grabbed this thing and opened it up and of course it's just makeup and whatever inside and they're like uh they're like all right thanks for telling us kid we'll, we'll try to find the, the person this belongs to <laughs> wait where was your mom while this is happening she was there with me but she just let me take charge she just let me like she let me handle the situation. I don't know. Did you turn around funny. and you're like, yo, mom, what the hell, man? Help me out here. Yeah, kind of. I was like, I was like, yeah, this is, this is not a safe situation. But you know, what's funny is like afterwards, I felt like such a hero. <laughs> I was like, I was like, fuck yeah, man. I just saved the day. <laughs> well, you did for yourself. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's so funny. Did that happen again? Or that was like kind of told you that, oh, you know what? We're safe here. Um, I, I'm sure I, I can't remember any other stories, but I, I'm sure that for the next like year or two afterwards, I was de- I was definitely still like on alert, you mm-hmm. know, um, like like you, even today, there's still remnants of it. I'm like. You know, I'm like Jason Bourne, you know, I walk into a building and I have to like locate the exits, mm. you know, it's like, what's it? There's a, there's a, a gunman in here. Like, how do I get out? You know, I, I don't know if that's my Israeli side or that's just me watching too many action movies. No, now. that's your Israeli <laughs> side for sure. The idea of like, <laughs> you know, they might collect us again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just like that. Uh, it's that paranoia, like the, uh, you know, always stay on your toes kind of thing. Exactly, you know, because you're like always on a fight or flight mode, right? It's trauma. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and I actually was in Israel in 2006 when mm. when the Intifada broke out with Lebanon, mm. and um, I, I was actually I was there just for like summer vacation to you know visit my grandmother and see some friends, and uh, I remember sitting on she had like this swing set outside. And I, it was a beautiful day. It was like super sunny, like 30 something degrees, hot, beautiful day. And I was just, I was just having a great time relaxing, swinging on the swing set. And then I, all of a sudden I remember hearing what sounded like distant fireworks. Mm. And, uh, and I remember thinking like, that's really weird. Like there's no holiday going on. There's nothing <laughs> to celebrate. <laughs> like why, what is going on? And then, and then I guess this is where my Canadian side was, was too active, you know, cause, cause then it clicked and I was like, wait a second. So I ran inside, I put on the news and then sure enough, like the nearest village, maybe 15 minutes away, it's actually a city, it's called Tiberius. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was getting bombed and it was, uh, you know, it had, uh, uh what you call, uh, Katyusha missiles, uh, being launched on it. Holy so, shit. yeah, so that was a scary time. Um, uh, I basically, I went in, I got my grandma, I told her, listen, we have to be ready to hop into the, the, sh- the shelters. Cause in Israel, you basically have bomb shelters everywhere. Uh, like it's true. Like every house has to have like a bomb shelter within a certain range from it. 
So wow. I think the one closest to my grandma's house was like literally 50 meters away. And not only that, every house in Israel needs to be constructed with um, uh, a, a security room, a room that's that's built a little bit tougher than all the others. So it's like mm. maybe two layers of concrete instead of one, just mm. in the event that there's, you know, an attack. So so that was a scary time, I remember. And uh, and um, my dad actually ended up coming from Canada to, to, to get us out, you know, because it was like, it was getting a little bit... Uh, scary so yeah so there are some intense moments um but uh man that's honestly that's life there that's and it's not just us it's the 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 palestinians on the other side they're experiencing the same thing the lebanese the same thing syrians the same thing uh it's just like it's an area of uncertainty of conflict of just ever-changing power so i'm like i'm like one story of like thousands the millions there you know of like people experiencing these traumas and stuff yeah Mm -hmm, for sure let's talk about your time in barcelona sure yeah why did you go there Uh, (laughs) i uh i followed a girl there (laughs) (laughs) that's always the, the start of a bad story I, I love bad stories. Let's go. Uh, I um, yeah, my, I had a, my girlfriend at the time. Uh, she she wanted to study in Barcelona, and I I saw that as an opportunity to go there too, and to to explore the culture and to explore the the world a little bit to see Europe. Mm-hmm. So uh, so yeah, she she got a student visa, and she was going to be there for six months. And then I wanted to be there with her. But the problem was that as a North American, you could only be there for, I think, a hundred and no, sorry, 90 days mm. out of 180. So like three months. And I was like, damn, how do I stay there for six months? So I found out that they were actually issuing these, um, youth, what they call a youth mobility visa. It's like, only a thousand applicants a year get accepted. And, you know, if you meet the requirements, if like you're a young person wanting to explore Spain and whatever, they'll issue you a six month visa. Hmm. So um, I actually, I actually ended up applying for that and I got it. And uh, so that was really cool. I, I, I was able to go there. And um, with my luck, like month three is like when COVID hit, so I had to come back. <laughs> but uh, wait, why but do you was, have to come really- back? I, I, I didn't have to come back, but um, the thing is that I was like, I was going to find a job there and like, you know, start making money and whatever. Mm. Uh, but because of the pandemic, everything locked down. And so I found myself suddenly like not being able to find a job at all. Mm. I was in a foreign country and like, you know, I didn't have anybody. It was locked down. So like, I wasn't going to stay there. You know, it was just super scary uncertain times i just wanted to like come back and then you realize the girl is crazy exactly no, 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 no. <laughs> i i, 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 I don't want to say that no no so it, uh, let's put it this way we we were too different to to stay together <laughs> in, in case he ever listens to this <laughs> we're not gonna say names so it's, it's fine yeah exactly um yeah we were now we you know we got back and we isolated and then shortly afterwards it was like it was just it, we realized it wasn't wasn't the right thing and uh, it was actually the best decision I ever made because um, after that shortly after that I, I met my current girlfriend which uh, is uh, is amazing hmm. and um, yeah we're we're super happy and. We're living together now, and so things really worked out for me. Congratulations. Thank you. But uh, Spain is beautiful. Like Barcelona in particular, mm-hmm. um, amazing, amazing city. Like it, it's like, I kind of, I describe it as like the Quebec of Spain mm-hmm. because first of all, people, a lot of people there don't consider themselves Spanish. Mm-hmm. They consider themselves Catalonian. And a lot of them are separatists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like, it's like a unique culture. It's like Catalan, you know, and they, they have their own language and their own food. 
And anyways, beautiful place. I highly recommend. That's amazing. Let's talk about bike. Sure. Yeah, man. I'm always down to talk bikes. <laughs> Describe your business and what services you offer. Um, so my business is a mobile bike shop business. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, like I come to your door, and I have my whole workshop within a van. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I conduct all of my repairs, my tune-ups, all that kind of stuff within the van. So you know, I try to make it easy for the client. I, my my whole concept behind it was, I, I came up with this like you know during COVID. So mm. um, I, I before that I was working at a bike shop, and uh, uh, I, I started to see the landscape shifting. You know, like uh, brick and mortar locations start to become like kind of. Um, fragile you know lock they were susceptible to lockdowns and they were susceptible to 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 governments uh you know imposing like um limits on how many people can go in and the whole framework started to 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 look very fragile to me Hmm. but what i what i on the contrary like what i saw was really starting to take off was the whole e-commerce online you know at-home services things like that, mm-hmm. you know? And so like, I basically tried to like reimagine what a bike shop could be. And I, 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 I'm not trying to take credit for it. Like there's a company that's been doing it for a few years. They're called fellow fix and they're they're They were kind of like my inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, and I thought that would, that'd be really cool. And I sort of like had this vision that that would be the future, you know, at home services, uh, people are working from home now. So they have more time uh you you come to them they don't have to you know take time out of the day you don't they don't have to get their cars dirty with their bikes mm-hmm. uh they don't have to leave their bikes at a shop for a week like it, it just all made sense like mm-hmm. from every perspective um and so like yeah i decided to give it a shot and uh got my van and uh a couple of tools and just slowly started you know start started up with doing some tune-ups and then as I was making a little bit of money, I would just reinvest and buy tools and expand on my services. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's by no means like done. I think there's a lot more work that that can be done. But you know, now I can now I pretty much offer like tune-ups and and drivetrain cleaning and uh, repairs and all, you know all kinds of. Different How did services. you get into bike mechanic? Um, I got into bike fixing when I was very young, when I was like probably 12 and just Frankensteining the crap out of like my parents' bikes and mm-hmm. my old bikes. <laughs> so I was like, I was always the kid to like take apart things and like, you know, just mm-hmm. mess around. Yeah. But why bike? Uh, oh, because uh, going back to, to, to the kibbutz, uh, like the only way you would really get from one place to the next is by bike. Mm. So I started riding bikes when I was two years old. And, um, and like I, I, I just was always obsessed with, with, with the, with bikes, like really obsessed. Uh, like when my parents bought me my first like adult bike, when I was like, I don't know, six or seven years old, like one that had gears and all that. I, I had a name for it. I, 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 I had like, I was like, it was like my machine. Like I loved it. You know, I would mm-hmm. get on it and I would like make like motorcycle sounds. And I just like, I was like, I loved it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was just, I was always obsessed. Um, and then as I got a little bit older and like saw like, uh, actually I remember the next phase was, it was, I think it was like my 13th birthday or something. And my aunt got me a DVD called Rome. Okay. I highly recommend this to, to anybody listening. It's, it's a movie called Rome. It's made by the collective. And since then they've come out with a, with a, with a few other issues. Um, but Rome was the first one, and it was basically a beautiful, scenic mountain, mountain biking in, like, British Columbia, in, like, the Mojave Desert, and all kinds of different places around the world, but with really cool, like, uh, ambient music as well. Mm. So it's just, like, this audio-visual experience, like nothing else. Like, it's, it's very, very cool. I, I highly recommend you check it out. Mm-hmm. And... When I was 13 watching this, I just, I was hooked instantly. Like I saw these guys bombing down like, you know, ski hills at like 
50 kilometers an hour on their mountain bikes and carving these trails and going between trees and jumping like 30 feet in the air. And, and like, that just blew my mind. I was like, this is, this is insane. This is like, this is a whole other sport. I've, I've never seen anything like this. Mm. And, um, and then that, that, that opened my mind up to like where the sport can take you. Like, it's not just cycling on the street for fun. Like this is, this is, you can, this is, a, this is an actual extreme sport, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then, and then as you go up, it, it, up in level to these, ex- to these extremes, like, you know, the technology on the bikes gets more complicated and, and gets cooler. And like, you have big knobby tires and, and disc brakes with eight inch rotors and hydraulic brakes and like mm-hmm. suspension that like you would find on a motorcycle, like just really cool technical stuff. And, and being like the, the techie geek that I am, I was just like, you know, like I fell in love with the tech and researched for hours and hours and bought my first downhill bike. And it just like snowballed from there, you know? Mm. Did you try to be a professional biker? Um, yes, but uh, to be honest, I was just too much of a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to do the 30 feet fly there? Uh, no, no, I... I I remember, I, I think I'm, I was like 14 or 15 and I, I went to Bromont. That was like our local hill where people would do this. And I, I, I went there for the first time with my dad and after like, you know, a little bit of convincing him and, uh, and he's like, yeah, okay, let's try it. And so we went there, we rented the, the these kick-ass bikes. And, and um, I remember the guy asking us, was like, do you guys want protective gear? And my dad was like, you know, every like piece of protective gear was more money, right? It was like elbow pads, $10, knee pads, mm-hmm. this, yeah. whatever. So my dad's like, uh, you know, maybe we'll just take helmets. And the guy's like, okay, well, listen, for $15, you, you can get the full face helmets, you know, like the motorcycle ones. And he's like, oh, do we really need those? And the guy's like, I strongly recommend you take those. So immigrant. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> right? <laughs> so... The guy convinced us and my dad was like, okay, fine. Like we'll, we'll, we'll take, we'll take the full face helmets. Well, let me just tell you, it's a good thing we did because I took the gnarliest dive of my life on the last run of the day. I tried, I tried doing this bridge jump. So a bridge is basically like you have, like it comes up, like imagine Mm -hmm. like the, like it has a ramp going up. Mm-hmm. and then and then and then it has like a straight section and then it has the ramp going down mm-hmm. and and like it was maybe like 12 feet in length and i tried to gap the whole thing but having zero experience in, in jumping mm-hmm. and so what, uh, of course what happened was a complete disaster i went off this thing completely let go of the bike midair and then just face planted knocked out cold no and, way um Oh yeah, I was I was completely gone. Um, not for long. I, I woke up like like I, I came to shortly after. Um, but the the crazy thing is that that full face helmet saved my face because mm. literally I, I would have lost every single tooth in my mouth. Like I, I landed face first. So whoever is listening and thinking of doing downhill mountain biking, take the full face helmets. It's like. It's essential. <laughs> but uh, where was dad when it happened? Uh, my dad was ahead of me. My dad was, <laughs> he was actually the, the reason why I tried going so high. Because you see, I, I'm biking and I see him in front of me. And then all of a sudden he takes off this jump and he gets like, I don't know, like four feet of air. And it just looked so much fun. And I was like, oh, four feet? No, I'm, I'm going to double that. I'm going to do eight feet. And so I, I just, I, I'm like pedaling as fast as I possibly can down this hill. And, and then that's when it happened. And I just, yeah. How did they find out? Did he stop? Did he notice? Like, oh, where's Ellie? So, yeah. So what happened was I, there was a guy behind me mm. and I wiped out. And then the guy saw me wipe out. So then he, he biked over to my dad and he, and then I can hear him. Like I can, I was able to hear the guy screaming to my dad, like, Ila tombe, Ila tombe. like, you know, he fell, he fell. Mm. And, uh, and then that's when my dad turned around and it ran over to me and, and helped me get up and stuff. And, and I was okay. Nothing broken, but like, I was just scraped up pretty bad. Uh, just concussion, you know, it might affect me the rest of my life, but whatever. Exactly. But, but here's the, here's the, the, so the, the cherry on top of it. Um, 
so like we I get up and we look we we obviously pick up the bike that had just fallen mm-hmm. and we notice that there was like the brake lever had completely bent you know like it was almost like broken because I took a pretty hard fall mm-hmm. and um and obviously like there's uh you know you, you put a deposit aside for these bikes in case for any damage and so so there there we are like we're about to return the bikes and my dad's looking at this thing and he's like oh fuck I really don't want to pay the damage deposit so he goes up to like the, the I don't know like the 18 year old kid that's working at the hill and he's like uh, he's like here's the bike and the kid points out like the the, the broken lever and my dad's like no nah, we didn't do that and the kid's like uh that's impossible like we inspect the bikes before we let them go and my dad's like no 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 you you guys gave us the bike like that <laughs> and then he just somehow got away with it he's like he gave him the look like you want krav maga Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't know where I come from. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, man. So knowing what you know now, is there anything you would have done differently when you were started your business? Um yeah. I would not give so many discounts. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I I I was um yeah, I I really love what I do. I I mm. really really do. Like it's absolutely my passion. And like my first year doing it, I literally I did it for fun. I I charged people nothing. Like I'm talking like $20 for a tune-up that would take me an hour and I would drive to them. Like mm. it was just stupid. I made no money. I lost so much money. Mm-hmm. And It wasn't because like I I wasn't you know I, like I think I just didn't put a value to myself. I I just thought to myself like oh, you know, $20 for an hour, that's not bad. That's more than I would earn at working at the bike shop. Mm-hmm. But that's not how it worked. You know, you have your materials, you have your gas, you have your this, you have your it's your time. Mm-hmm. And I I wish I would have put a little bit more value on my service earlier on. Um but you know, then again like It, it takes a little bit of time before you realize what it is that you're offering and, and that you know you gain that confidence when when customers tell you that like you know they really appreciate what you're doing and that like you're actually really helping them out and all that kind of stuff so maybe it just had to take its natural course mm-hmm, for sure yeah. starting a business in the pandemic i'm sure it's extra difficult what keeps you going um I, I want to say that it was difficult, but the demand for biking was so high that mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's unfair for me to say, like, I, I did not struggle like restaurants or like gym mm-hmm. struggle, you know? Um, like I feel really, really bad for restaurants and for gyms, especially mm-hmm. that had to put their business on hold. And, you know, many of them didn't make it through the pandemic. It was very, very sad. But uh, when it came to the cycling world, like, man, it was, it was insane there's just uh demand coming out of my ears like it was it was it was it was it was cool you know um mm-hmm. so yeah i i kind of i i want to say it was more like an opportunistic decision i guess that's what business is that's what business is yeah for sure for sure uh, you got to You know, I heard once, I heard a while ago during like, it was one, during one of the lockdowns, like somebody saying that like, you know, when it comes to businesses and the pandemic, there's like two philosophies, you know, there's like those who say, who are going to say like, you know, we're going to get through this and we just have to hang tight and we're just going to, you know, uh, reduce our costs and, and brace ourselves and, mm-hmm. you know, get through this. And then there were those that said, um, okay, it's time to pivot. You know, how can we rearrange our model so that we can make money through this and you saw that with some restaurants you know some mm-hmm. restaurants were very quick to downsize uh get rid of indoor dining uh you know sign up skip and uber and doordash and all those things and just mm-hmm. you know start to become like a takeout business and i think that that i think that's smart that's resilience you know it's not like it's not necessarily um working against the current it's working with what you have and it's adapting mm-hmm. that's beautiful man i think we're there but one more question sure 
What is the most important lesson you've learned in life? Uh, wow, that's a philosophical one. Um, be honest to yourself. Don't ignore your needs. Don't put yourself second or third or whatever. Uh, you need to take care of yourself. You have one life and it's your life and nobody's going to experience it for you. So you, you have to make sure that you take care of yourself. You have to make sure that you do what you need to be happy. And I'm not saying that, uh, that it has to come at the cost of anybody else's happiness, you know, hold your head high and, and, and carry your good moral values and virtues. But remember that you come first and, uh, yeah, I had, it took me a while to realize that, you know, but you, you can't make others happy unless you're happy. So. Yeah, mm. it really comes down to that. And, and I think that like the way that I see it is it's like, um, I'm actually going to borrow this idea from my father a little bit. He's a, he's a wise man. Um, he calls it like his fundamental like pillars. And I see it that way too. So you have your, you know, your, your health pillar, you have your social pillar, you have your financial pillar. You know, you have like these four or five pillars that really contribute to a, a healthy and balanced lifestyle. And those are the things that you really need to focus on to, to make yourself like uh, feel good and, 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 and realize your value. So, you know, focus on your health, you know, work out, make sure that you, you know, it's, it's house cleaning. You, you have to, you're not going to go to bed without brushing your teeth. You're, so you're not going to get on with your day without doing a run or, or, or working out. It's just what it is. Um, you know, social connections, very important. Like you gotta, you know, even if you're feeling a little introverted, reach out to a friend, just say, hi, they're thinking about you, you know, or, you know, just make sure you keep that, that connection family, you know, make sure that, you know, your priority is your family. You know, you gotta, so focus on those things. And I think that, uh, that's going to make you well-rounded and balanced and, um, yeah, so, uh, remember that, uh, you have yourself at the end of the day. The only person up in that, in that head is you. So mm -hmm, for sure. Again, Eli, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Uh, it's my it. pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate the, the invite here. It was, it was actually a blast. I was like a little nervous going into it, but it was, it was awesome. Great experience. Great to hear. Have a good day, bro. Yeah, you too. Can't wait to see you. Bye. Again, Eli, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Endoliosa from Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later.